This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Defense Department has recently unified its artificial intelligence efforts under the Chief Digital and AI Office. I'll talk to the official in charge of the department's AI assurance and advocating for kids with disabilities, how one government employee is pushing for equitable education around the world and making a difference for millions of students. And Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, is charged with enforcing immigration laws, including arresting, detaining, or releasing foreign nationals. But a report by the Government Accountability Office found that oversight and monitoring is lacking in some areas. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. While there's a lot of science fiction out there about artificial intelligence taking over the world, getting it right for the warfighter and ensuring the trust of the American public is critical. Jane Pinellas is the Chief of AI Assurance at DOD's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. The Defense Department has released the Responsible AI Strategy and Implementation Pathway. What's in it? So what's in it is very precise guidance to the entire Department of Defense on how to actually operationalize and implement the Responsible AI principles. Anything from how we build Responsible AI into our acquisition life cycle uh, to how we train our workforce to be champions for responsible AI um, and all of the other tasking to multiple, I think there are over 60 tasks uh, in that document to the different organizations in the DOD for how to shepherd implementation of responsible AI across. And, and is it the U.S. government that's the first government out there to actually um, put out ethical AI principles? Uh, the United States Department of Defense is the first Department of Defense to adopt uh, ethical AI principles. Since then, multiple nations have followed. So let's talk about some of the principles. There, there are five total principles of ethical AI. One of them is for AI to be equitable, which means avoiding unintended bias. How do you do that? How do you avoid something that's unintended in the first place? Well, the, fir the first step is probably being aware of it, right? And let's talk about the word unintended. The fact that it's uh, unintended is important because there's some bias that is very intentional, right? If the system is going to perform uh, computer vision in the desert, then I want to intentionally bias it towards the desert, right? And, and, and that's good. Um, unintended bias, however, can occur, for instance, in the personnel systems, right? So that's probably the example that's easiest to imagine. Uh, if we're looking at an AI-based recommender for promotions, and certainly if we look back, we will see probably a disproportionate amount uh, of promotion, uh, promotions to allocated to men um, or allocated to people with a certain um, career track. Uh, and so if there is a desire to change that, if there are new, new values that are coming in, if there are more women, for instance, that we're uh, assessing into the DOD, then we need to make sure that the outcomes uh, towards those uh, classes that traditionally are underrepresented uh, are treated fairly. Another principle is for AI to be traceable. What does that mean? So I want to make a, dis um, a difference here between traceable and transparent. Right? We don't necessarily need full transparency to trust our equipment. We all use Google Maps every day without having any idea exactly how it works. But traceable does mean that you know what data your uh, system was trained on. Traceable does mean 
uh, that you understand how it was trained and you know the limitations of it, uh, that we've communicated properly to the warfighter where their system has been tested and how well it works, and that relevant personnel have relevant access to the system. For example, a tester like me would know a lot more about the system and have access to it throughout to test it at various stages of its development. So what's the difference between trust in AI and justified confidence, which is a term that you prefer? And why is it important to make that distinction? I think that distinction is important because trust is inherently something that's very poorly defined. If you Google trust, you will get over 300 definitions. And we want to be really objective in how we define it. Um, trust also, we talk about trust as something that is built. Um, and we don't want to encourage blind trust. We want to encourage justified trust or justified confidence, meaning that we only want the warfighter to trust the system where we have tested it and where we know that it works. The term confidence is actually a very technical term that is well-defined that speaks to if you were to repeat a certain action multiple times, how many times would that action be correct? Um, and so we prefer to use justified confidence over trust in this context. AI is sometimes referred to as brittle, right? So it, it, something that's brittle would break easily. What makes AI break so easily? Why is it brittle? AI depends entirely on the data on which it was trained, right? And so if that data are incomplete, if uh, those data are not as representative as you think of the proper operational environment, then AI becomes overfit to that very specific situation and you can have trouble generalizing to an operational environment that it encounters in the field. But also, the way that we build and the way that we train AI is often based on open source tools, uh, which means that people without access to your data and to your specific model actually have a lot of information about how you built your AI. And so we see a lot of interest in adversarial and cyber attacks towards AI as well. We've all seen examples of where uh, a stop sign with just a few stickers gets changed into a speed sign. Um, and that's something we really have to watch out for. Uh, you know, our adversaries eroding our trust in our own systems by being able to fool them in a variety of ways. I was going to ask you about adversarial uh, AI because it can be tricked in pretty easily, right? Uh, admittedly, yes. Uh, but on the other hand, now that we have that information, we can build our systems to be more robust. And we can specifically design our systems so that in situ, uh, we have awareness for when the system is being attacked in an adversarial fashion um, and how to be resilient uh, to that type of an attack and how to recover from that type of an attack. What would you say are the major challenges to getting AI um, adopted quickly? What's hindering that progress across the department? There are a lot of challenges, but probably culture is the one that I want to address the most. Um, we in the Department of Defense uh, for decades now have been trying to be extraordinarily responsible with taxpayer dollars and be extraordinarily safe when it comes to uh, cyber and, and other types of adversarial actions. Because of that, we are now slower than we'd like and we're much more risk averse than we'd like. And I think uh, the truth is that um, when you accept, uh, when you design your system uh, against the risk of you know, an enemy penetrating the system, for instance, uh, like a cyber resilient system, it becomes slower. And what you're doing at that point and what we don't discuss enough is you're accepting 
the risk now of maybe not getting the best AI tools or not getting the best AI talent or the best AI system because you've now made your system so protected uh, against some of these other things. And so I, d I just think we need to do a better job of explicitly weighing those costs and benefits against each other. All right, Jane. Well, we're out of time, but thanks so much for coming by. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Coming up next on Government Matters, how USAID is making education more accessible to kids with disabilities around the world. We'll be right back. Across the world, fewer than 3% of kids with disabilities can read. My guest has helped improve access to education for millions of students with disabilities in nearly 50 countries. Josh Josa is an inclusive education specialist at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He's also a finalist for a Service to America medal. He's joined by his American Sign Language interpreter, Jackie. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you're a third generation deaf person and you've devoted your career to helping kids with a wide range of disabilities. Can you tell me why you wanted to do this type of work? There's so many different layered reasons to why I've decided to focus in this area. The three big reasons are, like you mentioned, I'm a third generation deaf person. My grandmother is deaf and she lives in Hungary. In the 1950s, deaf people were not allowed to drive in Hungary. My grandma fought and fought to get the ability to have a driver's license and that spread countrywide and deaf people started to be able to drive. She also did advocate for deaf rights and deaf education. That led to the deaf community worldwide, many different sign languages. It didn't matter how many different nationalities we all were, we all were able to communicate to each other. And because of that, sharing that individualized experience of deaf education, because of that, the deaf education worldwide, we noticed that there are inequities. People will actively not promote the use of sign language in deaf education and in society. That then led me to want to work in the Peace Corps for Kenya. And there I taught at two different deaf schools and I saw many of the same things, the inequities. That is why I'm focusing on this right now. And I wanted to ask you about kind of the opportunities that you had in this country and really compared to what you're seeing overseas with kids with not only deaf but also other disabilities. Here in the United States, we're so fortunate to have great education system. We have direct communication access to teachers who are hearing as well as deaf, and they're proficient in signed language. In classes, uh, I was in classes with other students who are CODAs, children of deaf adults, and hearing students, and students who were never exposed to sign language, and we were able to communicate directly through sign language. In other countries, they don't have programs like this. They don't have good teacher training, resources, and most importantly, parents don't believe that their kids are able to go to school and achieve. Let's talk about the work you did in Morocco for the, um, for the USAID. What were some of the challenges that kids there with disabilities face? Working in Morocco was fascinating. Prior to that, uh, the government in Morocco tried to do work in education for children with disabilities, but not much happened. When we went there and we tried to collaborate on a program design and we saw many children 
were not in school. About half of disabled children were not in school. We tried to encourage them to come to school. Deaf children, specifically, teachers didn't know sign language. Books, they weren't able to read. Parents didn't understand the importance of using sign language. All of that then culminated into the government of Morocco recognizing the importance of educating children with disabilities overall. They set up an Office of Inclusive Education as well as policies, which is so exciting to see. You also had to change the mindset of uh, government officials uh, so that they can really believe that kids not only should go to school, but can have a really bright future. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing is mindset change story for you. Uh, I was reading notes and signing to an audience of government stakeholders and sitting next to me, there was somebody from the Ministry of Education. And they asked me, did you write this? They thought the interpreter wrote it for me and they were speaking on my behalf. And I said, no, I wrote this information just to show that type of mindset and attitude that we're facing. It's really the impact just trickles down to everything. You've worked to implement a concept called universal design for learning. What is that and how does it work? UDL is universal design for learning. It is based on the science of how people learn. There are three principles. One, multiple means of engagement. The second, representation. And the third, action and expression. Basically what that is, is making sure that all children, doesn't matter their background, their needs are met. For example, for representation, we need to make sure that all students are able to receive and understand what information they're being taught, whether that be through reading, braille, signed language, auditorily, just understanding and comprehending that information. UDL is not only for children with disabilities, it's for all children. And the goal is to make sure that every single student and the education system has a minimum standard that is set that students are able to achieve and Josh, they can benefit from education. Josh, finally, make the case for me that the American taxpayer should be funding education programs overseas when we've got a need right here in the U.S. Absolutely. We definitely have a need here. We need more support here in the U.S., but also abroad. If we do not support education systems, that means their health, their employment, and their life trajectory and outcome are impacted. Education is the foundation for all of life and making free democratic societies. So if we invest in them, then we'll have better health outcomes, better learning outcomes, and better employment outcomes in total. And in turn, that will then help us also. We have more collaboration. Josh, I want to thank you so much, not only for being here, but for the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up on Government Matters, monitoring undocumented foreign nationals as they await resolution of their cases. Stay with us. Every year, tens of thousands of undocumented migrants in Immigration and Customs Enforcement custody are moved into a monitoring program while they await court proceedings or final orders of removal. It's called Alternatives to Detention. But a recent report from GAO is recommending better oversight and monitoring. 
Rebecca Gambler is a director at the Government Accountability Office. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me, Mimi. So first explain the Alternatives to Detention program and how does it work? The Alternatives to Detention program is one way that U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, monitors foreign nationals who are not detained and whose immigration cases are being heard before the immigration courts. For individuals who are not detained but released into the community, ICE is responsible for monitoring them to ensure that they comply with the terms of their release, such as attending immigration court hearings. The Alternatives to Detention program uses monitoring technology like GPS ankle bracelets or reporting by phone and case management services like home visits to ensure that individuals who are released into the community comply with the conditions of their release. ICE administers the program in conjunction with a contractor. ICE is responsible for making decisions about whether or not to enroll individuals in the Alternatives to Detention program and when and whether to unenroll them from the program. And the contractor provides the monitoring technology and the case management services. So the individuals enrolled in the um, ATD program more than doubled. Uh, it was 53,000 in 2015. It went to over 110,000 in 2020. Do we know, Rebecca, what accounted for that increase? That's right, Mimi, and in part, ICE officials told us that that increase could be attributed to more individuals arriving at the southwest border. And your review found that they were collecting data uh, on the program, but not enough. What was missing as far as the data that, that they should be collecting? ICE and the contractor collect a lot of data about the Alternatives to Detention program and its participants. For example, they collect data on uh, individuals' appearance at immigration court hearings. They also record data on individuals who are unenrolled from the program and the reasons why they are unenrolled or removed. And they also collect data on the provision of case management services to program participants. And so while ICE is, is collecting all of that data and the contractor are collecting all of that data, we found that ICE was not utilizing that data to really assess how well the program is performing overall. We also, though, found that there were some areas where ICE could improve its uh, collection of data, and that really relates to its oversight of the contractor's performance. Well, before we get to the uh, oversight of the contractor, and I do want to talk about that, I want to ask about uh, absconsion, right? So um, people that have just fled and can no longer be located, are, are they not tracking those kinds of numbers? ICE does track information on why individuals were uh, unenrolled from the program or removed from the program, and that could include as one of the reasons uh, that an individual absconded. ICE uh, does report absconsion rates for uh, the program, and in fiscal year 2020, it reported an absconsion rate of 33%. However, we identified some issues with how ICE calculates that absconsion rate, and we did our own calculations using a different way 
to calculate the rate and uh, through our methodology found that the rate would be about 9%. And so we actually made a recommendation to ICE that they should consider reporting the absconsion rate using their existing approach, but also the way um, that we calculated the rate because they indicate two different things about the program. So we were talking about the, the contractor. This is a $2.2 billion contract to oversee the program and to do the other things that you mentioned. What did you find with respect to ICE's oversight of that contractor and what are you recommending? The contract specifies 17 performance standards that the contractor is supposed to meet and defines an acceptable level of performance for those standards. However, we identified problems with how ICE is overseeing the contractor. And in particular, we found that ICE wasn't always collecting the information it needed to assess the contractor's performance. Second, we found that ICE wasn't documenting or, the, or recording the results of some of its oversight activities activities, particularly audits that it does, in a way that really allows for analysis um, and a complete picture of the contractor's performance. And then third, we found that ICE was not following up on or verifying actions that the contractor took to resolve any issues that are identified through those audits that I mentioned. And so we recommended ways for ICE to improve its oversight of the contractor to ensure that the contractor is meeting those performance standards I mentioned. You've made several recommendations. I wonder what reaction has there been from ICE uh, on if they plan to implement them? ICE uh, concurred with all 10 recommendations that we made in the report and identified actions that they plan to take in response to those recommendations. And by implementing the recommendations that we made, we believe that ICE can really improve its oversight and management of the alternatives to detention program. And I assume you'll, you'll be following up to see if they actually do uh, all those implementations. We will, Mimi. We will be regularly monitoring ICE's activities in response to our recommendations. All right. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, 
include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.